Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. You know, each day we live, we have a series of choices of where we spend our time, what to think, and how to go about our day. And some people choose to fill their day with positive energy and worthwhile things. That's why I like uplifting podcasts. This podcast is born from a deep desire to help us all live a happier life. And the firm belief that a powerful way to make that happen is to open our eyes to new ways of seeing life. So hopefully today in this time together, we'll get a new perspective of how to think and live better. And as always, take a few minutes today to share this podcast with a friend. It just might be what they need in their life today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about what is a leader. And for the next few episodes, we'll be answering these leadership questions. Today, we'll begin with a few critical questions and answers that can help us all lead better. Here we go. In 1906, Grover Cleve Harrell started what was to become the Yellow Cab Company of Oklahoma with a horse-drawn passenger wagon and a team of horses. Then, with the advent of the automobile, he bought several cars, which he used as taxi cabs. In 1918, Harold painted one of his cars yellow. Although it was ridiculed by other cab drivers, he was hauling more passengers than anyone else, so he painted all his cars yellow, and business boomed. Harold trademarked the name Yellow Cab in Oklahoma. In partnership with his brothers and fathers, Cleve expanded his operations to a bus line connecting Oklahoma City and Tulsa. When oil was discovered in the Oklahoma City area, mules were needed to work in digging slush pits. So Harold Brothers bought mules and in 1929 established the Yellow Transit Freight Lines to serve small manufacturers for whom freight was slow and express rates were prohibitive. The freight company grew. Soon, the distribution centers across the country and changed its name to the Yellow Corporation. Leaping forward in December of 2003, Yellow Corporation at the time was the second largest freight carrier in the U.S., and it acquired the largest roadway corporation for $1 billion. The purchase announcement came less than a year after the bankruptcy of the nation's then third largest LTL carrier, Consolidated Freightways. And despite its size and leadership in market share of the LTL freight hauling market, Yellow Corporation could never seem to run profitably. It never had leadership to help take advantage of its size, and it could never get agreement with the 22,000 union workers it employed. Ongoing disputes and strikes continued to hurt Yellow. During the COVID pandemic, the federal government would lend Yellow $700 million as an emergency loan under the CARES Act. In exchange for the loan, U.S. taxpayers would acquire 30% of the company. A report by the Congressional Oversight Commission later concluded that no justifications had been provided for why Yellow Worldwide was entitled to receive the $700 million. On Sunday, July 30th, 2023, the company ceased operations due to financial problems. It filed for bankruptcy. It owes $730 million to the federal government. It has 30,000 employees, and the company only had three profitable quarters in the last 15 years. The collapse of Yellow Corporation is only one in a long line of corporate failures. Enron, Chiquita Brands, Kmart, Arthur Anderson, WorldCom, Lehman Brothers, Silicon Valley Bank, Texaco, Borders, EF Hutton, TWA, and more. 
The causes of these large corporate failures range from criminal fraud to mismanagement to excessive debt to failing to anticipate corporate moves. But all of these corporate failures have one thing in common. The leaders of these companies failed to lead as they should. One famous failure was Blockbuster. Blockbuster was an American-based provider of home movie and video game rentals. The company was founded in 1985 and headquartered in Dallas, Texas. In 1988, Blockbuster became the most popular video store chain in the United States with 800 stores. In 92, it expanded overseas and bought video rental chain Ritz in the UK with 2,800 stores. During the year 2000, Blockbuster had over 9,000 stores worldwide and over 45 million registered users. It had an extensive movie collection and an unrivaled snack space, making it the most convenient store for all in-house entertainment and snacking. Blockbuster's leadership was content with the retail model and its way of doing business. Blockbuster's income was mainly based on late fees, a model that penalized customers for keeping their VHS cassettes for too long. For any movie rental that was not returned by the due date, Blockbuster charged $1 a day. It also charged consumers a monthly subscription fee of $19 for three movie rentals per month. Well, since Blockbuster's primary source of income was from penalizing its customers, the strategy was vulnerable at best. Then online streaming started to take hold and Blockbuster's leadership failed to see the emerging market. In the year 2000, Netflix sought to sell its business to Blockbuster for $50 million. With its company only having started in 97, Netflix was still a young upstart in those days. If the transaction had been approved, Netflix would have been in charge of Blockbuster's online operations. Blockbuster raised $465 million in an IPO the year prior, so at the time, it could afford to acquire Netflix. However, Blockbuster declined the offer, stating the price was too expensive. Barry McCarthy, the former CFO of Netflix, claimed that Blockbuster laughed us out of their office. However, the hubris of Blockbuster leadership sealed their fate. They ignored customers' preferences by not shifting to online streaming. All the while, companies such as Netflix recognized the demand for online streaming and offered it as a core component of their business. So by offering a monthly subscription model with unlimited rentals, Netflix was able to provide greater value and convenience to customers, making it more appealing than Blockbuster's rental model. Today, Netflix has 214 million global paying subscribers. Blockbuster doesn't exist. Blockbuster's board member, Carl Icahn, fought against the company's entry into the online rental market, urging it to stick to its brick-and-mortar origins. To achieve this, Icahn led the firing of John Antioco, CEO of Blockbuster, and Jim Keyes was appointed to the position. Later, a Blockbuster expert would say, Jim Keyes is the main reason Blockbuster is in this failed position today. Now, all businesses ebb and flow from time to time. Perhaps in your business, you've experienced the same. There are times that are good and times when you seem to struggle. And in those times, I bet you can point towards one thing that can and does make a difference. Leadership. The leadership of those who are guiding the business can guide it up or down. And the same goes for a family. And the same goes for leadership in your own life. Lead well and your likelihood of success 
increases, lead poorly, and you aren't likely to sustain the good that could otherwise be sustained. So if this is true, then could we agree that leadership is in fact one of the most essential factors of a business and a family that grows and prospers? So let's take a few minutes today and answer some of the questions that most often get asked about leadership and see if we can help each other lead better. So here we go. First question, what does a good leader do? Well, as you may know, this podcast is focused on helping us get a new view of how to think and live better. And based on the core concept that we have a belief window, a lens through which we not only see the world, but interpret our place in the world. And it's our view that guides our actions. And when we open our eyes and see that we are here on this earth to serve, because we are also the recipients of service, a lot of things change. We begin not to worry so much about ourselves. We begin to live and lead with more gratitude. And we become more influential and effective leaders as a result. One author described it this way. For most of us, life is like taking a walk. You see, taking a walk is easy. The challenge comes when you look behind us and realize people are following. We aren't sure why until we look back and see that by our living, we left markers on our path. And these signposts or markers stand as guideposts for others to follow. And they do. Good or bad, they follow. These can be signs like arrogance and entitlement, or they can be signs like humility and service. The scripture says, set up roadsides, put up guideposts, mark well the path by which you came. Now, ever since I read this quote, it has stuck with me. Mark well the path by which you came. We are all walking a path in life. And if we've chosen well, others will follow. And what are you leaving behind for them along this path? Is it an example of how to be a person of service? Are you leaving signs of encouragement? Are you making it about their journey instead of yours? Are there signs of kindness and no signs of judgment and signs of hope? Well, to this end, we can probably agree that leaders lead by who they are and how they live first. They lead by what they leave behind for others to follow. For example, as a young man, I always wasn't the best son, but my father left behind on his path markers of faith hard work, kindness, and commitment. As I followed that path, I would see his example, and those things, in part, became mine because it's what he valued and what he did, I noticed. The man he was lifted me to be a better son and person. And the same likely goes for you. If you're leading a team, think about what markers you're leaving behind. What are you doing on purpose in your leadership? You know, in 1998, the National Education Statistics Foundation started a landmark study. The study was a longitudinal study, meaning they would follow over 9,000 kindergartners over the course of their young life. Their goal was to discover what factors led to outcomes in education and choices by these children as they entered adulthood. Now, a large number of factors were measured as researchers gathered the data on a regular basis And the foundation made the data available to others who would do further research. But several key factors emerged. First, statistically speaking, kids from economically disadvantaged homes were doomed, if you will, 
not to go on to study math or science or pursue careers that would provide significantly higher incomes. And one of the most significant factors in this determination was that for the most part, lower income household parents did not pass on the aspiration of things. The lack of aspiration in the household culture kept the kids from aspiring themselves. Now, there were other factors, but aspiration was key. Now, it wasn't true in all cases. There were many lower-income homes in which parents insisted that despite the parents' lack of math or science education, the child would be given as many opportunities to lift themselves from their circumstances as possible. In other cases, it was an after-school program or a friend who gave this aspiration to the child. Here's the point. A leader or parent who aspires and creates faith in those on their team probably doesn't realize just how much this aspiration spills over to those following on the path. Now, let me ask you, in your team or family, do you lead with aspiration? What words of aspiration do you use? What culture of aspiring do you create on your team? Now, the definition of aspiring is hoping to become or desiring and working to achieve a particular goal or attain a specified outcome. Aspiring leaders are people that want to be developed themselves. They are continuous learners. They thrive in an environment where opportunities to learn, grow, and improve exist. So many leaders try to be inspiring when aspiring will help the teams more than inspiring ever will. My father set an example of being aspiring by being coachable himself. When we would go to church, I saw him take what he heard and bring it home. I saw him not just listen, but lay hold on what he heard and put it into action. I saw him try on many occasions to attempt to be a better man. His humility, discipline, and desire to approve was aspiring to me. This, perhaps more than anything else that he did, affected my life. What could you do to show those on your team how to be coachable and aspire to become or reach a goal? So much of what our youth need today are leaders who leave markers by their example of how to aspire. You know, my mother was aspirational in this way as well. Apt to try, apt to learn, apt to have faith. When my mother was 16, one day in Sunday school class, her teacher taught the concept of love. And she invited all the youth in the class to go home and tell their parents that they loved them. My mother listened and felt impressed to do what her teacher asked her to do. But for mom, it was going to be unusually difficult. After the class ended, she waited for her classmates to leave and then said to her teacher, I can't do what you asked me to do. I can't tell my father I love him. You see, at the time, my grandfather was a mechanic on an army base. He wasn't that religious, and he was often rough, gruff, and mean like you'd expect from an army mechanic. At that time, I love you was not something they said to each other in their family. Well, the teacher said, you have to do it. Your father, especially your father, needs to hear those words from you. He deserves your unconditional love. So my mom went home, and all week the words of her teacher stayed with her. Finally, on Saturday night, knowing she would be facing her teacher the next day, my mom found her courage. My grandfather had just walked into the kitchen to put out a cigarette. My mom got up her courage and blurted out the words, Dad, I have something to tell you. I love you. With those words, my grandfather turned around, and with his back towards my mom, he leaned against the fridge with his head bowed down. 
My mom thought he was angry. He just stood there, back turned, head down. Then my big burly grandfather turned around and he was crying. My mom hesitated and she stepped over to him and he wrapped his arms around her and said, I love you. As long as she could remember, this was the first time he had hugged her and said those words to her. It was then, with those words, that my grandfather's heart began to soften. Years later, when I would visit my grandfather, the first thing he did was hug me and told me he loved me. When I knew him, he was a faithful and good man. I wonder what would have happened if my mother had not been aspiring and laid hold upon the words of her Sunday school teacher. What about you? What aspiration could you show your team? For example, perhaps on your team, there's a bad mood that surfaces around difficult activities like making contacts with potential new customers. But your aspirational approach to this activity, learning how to improve, being positive in the doing of it, seeking to encourage others to do the same, could have a long-lasting impact on what your team needs. The same with your children. Instead of helping them run from difficult things, they could learn to lean in to these things, use resilience, and aspire to make their life better. Next question. Why do some leaders fail to lead? Well, I feel many people misunderstand leadership. John Maxwell said, there's a common misperception among people who aren't leaders that leadership's all about the position and perks and power that comes from rising in an organization. Many people today want to climb the corporate ladder because they believe that freedom, power, and wealth are the prizes waiting at the top. The life of a leader can look glamorous to others on the outside, but the reality is that leadership requires sacrifice. A leader must give up to go up. In recent years, we've observed more than our fair share of leaders who use and abuse their organizations for personal benefit and the resulting scandals that came about because of their greed. The heart of good leadership is sacrifice not personal gain. If you desire to become the best leader you can be, then you need to be willing to make sacrifices in order to lead well. You know, after he wrote his best-selling book, Start With Why, Simon Sinek would go on to write a book entitled Leaders Eat Last. His point is that leaders sacrifice. Now, I lead an organization today, and I have lots of ways to improve. And like any leader, I'm the target of criticism and judgment most of which is justified. But what people fail to see is the hard work and sacrifice, stress, and demands that are placed on a leader. And if you're leading a team, no doubt there are those who don't understand or appreciate the sacrifices you make. If you're a parent, no doubt your children don't know about the hours spent supporting them and helping them. But there's a type of leader who is willing to sacrifice and give despite the lack of recognition. It is a servant leader. As a leader, it would be wonderful if you could move through your days in bliss with lots of good feelings from your team and great business success. But the truth is that leadership is found doing the heavy lifting in the valleys with only a brief moment or two on the mountain. This is something that Martin Luther King Jr. understood all too well. As Maxwell notes, King accepted his first pastorate in Montgomery, Alabama at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in 1954 and settled into family life when his first child was born the next year in November. But that peace didn't last long. Less than a month later, Rosa Parks refused to relinquish her seat on a bus to a white passenger and was arrested. Local black leaders 
arranged a one-day boycott of the transit system to protest her arrest and the city's segregation policy. When it was successful, they decided to create the Montgomery Improvement Association to continue the boycott. Already recognized as a leader in the community, King was unanimously elected president of the newly formed organization. And for the next year, King led a boycott and negotiated with city leaders demanding courteous treatment of black people by bus operators. First come, first serve seating for all bus riders and employment of black drivers. He also helped community leaders to organize carpools, raise funds to support the boycott, mobilize the community, and coordinate legal challenges with the NAACP. Finally, in November 1956, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the laws allowing segregated seating on buses. King also began paying a personal cost for the success. Soon after the boycott began, King was arrested for a minor traffic violation. A bomb was thrown onto his porch. He was indicted on a charge of being party to a conspiracy to hinder and prevent the operation of business without just or legal cause. Each time King climbed higher and moved forward in leadership for the cause of civil rights, the greater the price he paid for it. His wife, Coretta Scott King, said, Day and night, our phone would ring and someone would pour out a string of obscene epithets on the phone. Frequently, the calls ended with a threat to kill us if we didn't get out of town. King did some great things as a leader. He met with presidents. He delivered rousing speeches that are considered some of the most outstanding examples of oration in American history. He led 250,000 people in a peaceful march on Washington, D.C. He received the Nobel Peace Prize, and he prompted change in this country. But most of the time, most of the days of his leadership were spent in the valley of sacrifice and hard work. The night before his murder, here's what he said. I don't know what will happen to me now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I won't mind. Like anyone else, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Leaders sacrifice. Parents sacrifice. And it is in the sacrifice that we learn real leadership. Now, most of us won't come close to the sacrifices made by people like Martin Luther King. You see, King had arrived in Tennessee on Wednesday, the 3rd of April, to prepare for a march the following Monday on behalf of the Memphis sanitation workers. As he prepared to leave the Lorraine Motel for a dinner at the home of Memphis Minister Samuel Billy Kyles, King stepped onto the balcony of room 306 to speak to colleagues standing in the parking area below. An assassin fired a single shot that caused severe wounds to the lower right side of his face. An ambulance rushed King to the hospital where doctors pronounced him dead. Now, shortly after the assassination, James Earl Ray, a fugitive who had escaped from a Missouri prison, was identified as the shooter. The point is that you, while not to King's extreme, you as a leader will spend time in the valley. There you'll do your best work looking up at your goals up at the mountain. And when you decide that you will serve in the valley as a leader, to be the last to eat, to willingly give as a parent, what you'll soon find is that you lead with real influence. Very few people can lead from the top of the mountain. Almost everyone 
leads in the valley. And here's the thing. If you're waiting to be thanked or get recognition for your leadership and sacrifice in the valley, you might be waiting a long time. A servant leader serves without the desire for such recognition. Mothers give without ever receiving what they deserve in return. You know, years ago, Dale Sturm shared this story. Do you remember sitting in an arts and crafts table somewhere sometime in your life, braiding some long strips of plastic into what some people call a boondoggle or lanyard? One of my favorite American poets writes of one he made as a nine-year-old boy and gave to his mother. Here's the poem. I have never seen anyone use a lanyard or wear one, if that's what you did with them. But that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I had made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and nourishment from her own body. And I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted spoons of medicine to my lips, laid cold face cloths on my forehead, and then led me into the airy night and taught me to walk and swim. And I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said, and here is clothing and a good education. And here is your lanyard, I replied, which I made with a little help from my counselor. Here's a breathing body and beating heart, strong legs, bones, and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. And here, I wish to say to her now, is a smaller gift, not the worn truth, that you can never repay your mother but the rueful admission that when she took the two-tone lanyard from my hand, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. The realization of the magnitude of my debt to my mother came to me in phases. Haltingly as a teenager, in great heart-wrenching waves as a student, and then later as a young parent. Even now, as a middle-aged man, it settles on me from time to time and makes me weepy. This is how it is with mothers and fathers and servant leaders. You never get repaid. So again, if you're leading a team or family and thinking you are owed this, think again. Servant leadership is not about the recognition. It begins and ends with a true desire to serve. This is most true when you look at the greatest leader in our Lord. We think sometimes that prayer or faith or our attempt to sacrifice somehow pays God back for what he's done for us. But the truth is, we will never be able to give him even a small portion of what he has given to us. He is the servant leader, descending to the valley to show us how to live, giving of himself to help us eventually rise, and sharing all he has because he is a servant first. Years ago, the father of servant leadership, Robert Greenleaf, wrote, if the primary goal of traditional leadership is to further the organization's goals, the purpose of servant leadership is to serve others to be what they are capable of becoming. Greenleaf developed servant leadership theory after reading the novel Journey to the East by Herman Hesse, which describes a group of men on a mythical journey whose servant, Leo, sustains them with spirit and song. Leo turns out to be a great and noble leader who only posed as a servant. So it is with you and me. As the scripture says, we are leaving signs, markers for people to follow on the path behind and alongside us. Those markers can be full of aspiration, full of sacrifice, and filled with influence. So, as we end today, 
Remember, be aspirational as much as you are inspirational. This will help your team follow your lead. Remember, the desire to serve is key to a leader's success. Start with that desire and watch how your team and family will follow. Don't resent the time in the valleys of leadership. That is what leadership is all about. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.